0: When I first uh, heard about the rehab center, I was extremely skeptical. It always struck me as strange, why would the most conservative country in the world be running a progressive rehab program for extremists? Like That doesn't make sense to me. What I realized, spending so much time there, is number one, the idea that all these men are hardened, ideological, uh, you know, soldiers is not true. Two, there is a kind of you know, bandwidths of like, yeah, you have, you have the leadership who definitely are a lot harder to kind of get on board to this whole rehabilitation. But the foot soldiers, some of the people that you see in the film who aren't in that leadership, aren't in that kind of uh, upper... It's a little bit different. I knew that this film was going to get attacked. I didn't think it was going to be from the left, though. I was pretty sure it was going to be from the right. So if you can't even watch a two-hour film before chiming in, if that's too much energy for you to do, then you are not a journalist. You are an activist that writes. You are not a documentarian. You're an activist with a camera. If there's something in the film that is factually inaccurate and that we fucked up, yes, I will. When you do something wrong, you should apologize. But for me, apologizing or apologies are not performative. I'm not fucking apologizing for this shit because there's nothing wrong with this film.
1: Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations. We're fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is like probably like no one we've had on the
2: show before. She's a documentary filmmaker who's made a movie about the rehabilitation of some Guantanamo prisoners in Saudi Arabia that no one, for some reason, wants to show. Meg Smaker, welcome to Trigonometry. Yeah, it's Smaker by the way. Smaker. Yeah, <laughs> no.
0: it's okay. Everyone I wants fucked to say up Smaker. already. There we
2: go. <laughs> Don't say your terrorist buddies on me. <laughs> Look, um, it's great to have you on the show, Meg Smaker. I apologize for that. Yeah. I should have asked. Um, Before we get into the conversation about your brilliant movie, Francis and I both watched it last night and really enjoyed it. And I can't, for the life of me, understand why people don't want to show it anyway. We'll get into all that. But before we do, who are you? How are you? Where you are? What has been the journey through life that leads you to be sitting here talking to us?
0: Oh, that's not a mouthful. (laughs) Tell me your life story and your purpose. Um, Two minutes flat. Okay. So I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, I am a documentary filmmaker, but I wasn't always a documentary filmmaker, uh, for a long time ago. Um, in a, in a former life, I was a firefighter and I loved it and thought I'd always be one. And then 9-11 happened and, uh, my whole kind of world shifted. And, um, my dad always said that there's pretty much only three types of people in the world. Those when you hit them, they hit you right back. Those when you hit them, they run away. And those when you hit them, they ask, why'd you hit me? And I've always kind of been in that third camp. So after 9-11, that was the question. Why'd you hit me? And I started to kind of do research and read books about Islam and the and the, and the history of the Middle East and just watch the news ferociously. And I began to see that what I was seeing on the news was directly contradicting what I was reading about and I realized after a while that both those sources of information was through someone else's filter so I figured the only way to remove that filter was to like go and get the information firsthand so about six months after 9-11 I traveled to Afghanistan to try to find those answers for myself and was Immediately humbled by my own ignorance of the world. I don't, do you, know, do you remember what you were like when you were in your early 20s? Yes. Yes.
2: That, <laughs> that, that, I'd, I'd rather not. That's um, I did.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you, you have this very self assured view of the world, and uh, that all kind of came crumbling down when I went to Afghanistan. And that kind of sent me on a journey to try to v- educate myself. So I went back to the States, It was a firefighter for a little bit longer. And then um, shortly after, moved to the Middle East, moved to Yemen, lived there for almost five years, studied Arabic and Islamic culture. And while I was there, I taught Yemeni men how to fight fire. And then lived in Qatar for a year, traveled all around the Middle East, I think to every country except for Syria and Kuwait. And um, through those experiences, decided that I wanted to change careers from firefighting to filmmaking. Um, Because I was seeing, the stories that I was seeing and and experiencing, I didn't see represented anywhere in mainstream media. So I went back to the U.S., went to Stanford and got an MFA in documentary filmmaking and made a film that won a Student Academy Award. And then this is my next project that just premiered at Sundance. And yeah, that is a cliff note version I could possibly, cliff note <laughs> is, that's not a word, we're going to make it up, <laughs> the version I can possibly give you about who I am and why I'm here.
2: Well, it's a fascinating life story. First of all, you mentioned uh, coming to Afghanistan with a self-assured but ignorant worldview. Yeah. What did you learn there?
0: Um, well, I think for me, the things that I had gotten from our media was, you know, they hate us because our freedom, you're going to go over there and these people are going to hate you and try to kill you or kidnap you and... The opposite was true. So for example, uh, I basically hitchhiked across Afghanistan and this family in one of these villages took me in and clothed me, fed me. Uh, I didn't speak Pashtun, they didn't speak English, but I have amazing charades and pictionary skills. Mm-hmm. So we communicated through that that line. Um, and I was stayed with them for a little bit and one day we went out and to the local market. It was a very small village and it was with the grandfather and the grandson of the house. And we're walking through, and there's another guy in the, in the market who started just shouting at the top of his lungs at me and waving his fist in the air. I didn't know what he was saying, but I could pretty much take his meaning from his <laughs> gestures and his, uh, his voice that he, you know, didn't want me there and was very angry because my country was bombing his country at that particular time. Uh, the grandfather that I was staying with went up to the guy, picked him up by the scruff of the neck, yelled at him, put him down and the guy walked over and said sorry in Pashtun and welcome to Afghanistan in English. Now these guys probably know each other for decades. It's a small village. And yet this person welcomed me into his home, uh, defended me against someone else in the village who was angry that I was there. And it just went against everything that I had been taught about these people from the media. And so I just realized that, um, my understanding of the world was very
1: limited. Does that make sense? That yes. makes complete sense. So what inspired you to make the film?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a plethora of things. Um,
1: Tell everybody what it's called as yeah. well so they yeah. can.
0: So the original title was Jihad Rehab mm-hmm. and it got changed to The Unredacted. So it's now The Unredacted. And um, yeah, it's, it's a kind of a plethora of things. It's that question I told you before, why they hit us, try to understand the why of it, mm-hmm. but also, After Afghanistan, I did a lot of traveling. I had a lot of to places that usually people don't travel to, like Somalia, Afghanistan, Iraq, Colombia. And um, I met a lot of people who I think a lot of us think we know about and have strong opinions of, but actually don't have a lot of one-on-one conversations with. Meaning we talk about these people, but we rarely talk with them. So for example, I interviewed pirates in Somalia, warlords in Afghanistan, uh, rebels in Colombia and um, yeah it just kind of set me on a trajectory to kind of there's this quote from Dostoevsky where it, just, it used to be in the film but I took it out and it, he says um, the easiest thing in the world is to denounce the evildoer the most difficult thing in the world is to try to understand him and that's what the film is essentially trying to do to try to understand these men on a human level if that makes sense.
1: That makes complete sense. And what you do so beautifully in the film is because we all have these stereotypes of Islamic fundamentalists, jihadists, whatever you want to call them, but you actually get to understand them. You humanize You humanize them beautifully and you end up sympathizing with them and you get a level of understanding. Like I, The thing that struck me about the film is for many of these, particularly very young boys, one of them was 16, it's a search for belonging.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, at least for me anyway, I I interviewed over 150 of these guys. And um, after a while, I began to see a pattern. And as I was making this film, it reminded me of a a story my dad told me about starfish, of all things. And he said that there was a fishing village in Northern California that had a problem with invasive starfish. One day, the fishermen decide to get together just kill all the starfish once and for all. So they collect them up cut them into three, four, five pieces, thinking the starfish were dead. They threw the pieces back into the ocean, not knowing that starfish regenerate. So where there was one before, now there's five. The starfish population exploded and just devastated the local fishing economy. The moral of the story being, when you try to fix a problem you do not understand, you usually make it worse. Day after 9-11, most experts put the number of Al-Qaeda members around 400. Just before the, the pandemic, those same experts put the number around 100,000. Including affiliate groups. So basically, the US has been starfishing the shit of the (laughs) Middle East for the last two decades. Um, And partly because we don't understand. We don't understand these men. We don't understand their motivation. And I think when you use simplistic rhetoric and you kind of go off that, your decisions are flawed. So, for example, in the film, like I talked about, there's it's, it's a film about four guys, or four guys. It's a film about a group of men who spent 15 years in Guantanamo, and then they're sent to Saudi Arabia, to the world's first rehabilitation center for terrorists. And they're, there, and they're there for about a year, year and a half. In the film, we follow them for three years, a year and a half in the rehab center, and then a year and a half when they get out, and they try to find jobs, get married, have kids, start a family. And for me, the really interesting thing about making this film is seen a lot of kind of commonalities between these men and men that I know in my own life, and seeing that there's a, way more in common than we have different. Is that that, that
2: yeah. kind of it does make sense. Is what I think you are about to mm-hmm. ask, but uh, what I really like, I actually would disagree with Francis to some extent because while I sympathize, sympathize with some of them, yeah, I also think you do a very good job. Of not doing this sort of like, oh, they're all just mm-hmm. like us and they're all perfect little, precious little flowers. Cause you talk to a guy who's to make bombs for a living. Yeah. Right? And you talk to a guy who's clearly, clearly, what was the guy's name? The one that I said earlier was really scary.
0: Oh, Abu Ghannam.
2: Right. I mean, that dude is fucking terrifying because he clearly is very committed to jihad, has absolutely no no intention of reforming himself or anything like that. And you show that in the movie. So you're not sort of going over there going, oh, I've just realized everyone is sweet and perfect. Yeah. You try to give a rounded picture that some of the people who ended up uh, going through, by the way, and you emphasize this, I think it's very important to say, you know, I'm someone who's I've just written a book called An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. I think... Uh, in my experience, uh, the West is a force for good, generally speaking. It mm-hmm. uh, doesn't mean we don't make mistakes, of course. Yeah. But in my lifetime, the, one time, the first time I looked at the United States and I went, you guys aren't living up to the own st- your own standards that you preach was Guantanamo Bay, yeah. right? Because, okay, 9-11 was a, a, an awful atrocity. It was an awful atrocity, but it doesn't entitle you to suspend habeas corpus. It doesn't entitle you to just imprison people 15 years without charge, etc. And this is what these guys went through. And some of them probably were completely innocent or close to completely innocent. Others were hardened terrorists. And you show both of those.
0: Yeah, I think that the thing about this particular film is there have been quite a lot of people who've gone to Afghanistan who had absolutely nothing to do with any terrorist group. Um, and it was literally a wrong place, wrong time. And there's been quite a few films and, 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 and sort of stories and articles on that. But what I wanted to do with this film is men who, from their own mouth, talk about being involved in these groups in, in a plethora of different ways and a plethora of different levels. So for example, you have someone like Ali who went to an Al Qaeda training camp and was there for two, three weeks. And then 9-11 happened, they got picked up and sent to Guantanamo when he was 16 and didn't get out until he was almost 32. And then you have someone like Khalid, who you know, was one of the lead bomb makers and bomb instructors for Al-Qaeda. And so the, there's a huge le- like differences in level of culpability and level of involvement. And it like talks about or explores some of the nuance of that. For example, the word sex offender. You say that, it's a very charged word. But a sex offender can qualify someone as, in the United States, if you're 18 years old, and you sleep with a 16-year-old. It could also describe someone like Harvey Weinstein. Mm -hmm. And those things are very far apart. And so when you're watching the movie, not only does it kind of dive into like the different motivations, the different levels of involvement and how using a word like terrorist to describe all these men is actually really kind of dumbing down the conversation because it's way more complex and nuanced than that.
1: Yeah. And you said that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. And you've, you've said it a couple of times. What don't we understand, Meg? What are the things that people need to learn and need to understand who are not aware of this? Well,
0: I, I can't talk for the UK, but I think in the states the narrative has been quite simplistic. For example, it's all because of the religion, or they hate us because of our freedom. It's very like simplistic rhetoric. When when you look at the film, like I said, I interviewed 150 of these guys, and the reason why there's four characters in the film. It's because each, after I interviewed so many of them, I started to see a pattern. And they would fall into one of four motivations about why they got into these groups. Um, There was exceptions, of course, as there always is. But but it would be one of these four things, and that's why there's four characters, because each one of the subjects of the film represented a different motivation. The one that I think most Americans, at least, are familiar with is the cause. So that's Abu Ghannam, right? He thinks it's his religious duty to go and defend his fellow Muslims. He got into this because of Bosnia. He was living in Yemen, about to go to college. He saw the Bosnian War happening and thought that, you know, no one's there helping my fellow Muslims. It's my duty, my religious duty to go do that. But the other three have absolutely nothing to do with religion. And I think this is where the dialogue kind of stops, at least in the United States. Uh, The second motivation is economic necessity. That's Nader, right? So he's like, I need a job. I need money. This is a career. And it became a career for him. And then you have the third motivation is peer pressure. That's Ali. His older brother was in this. He said, hey, come to the training camp. I'm a trainer here. And he came over and decided to uh, to, to do a two-week training, training, three-week training course, I want to say, before 9-11 happened. And then the last one is um, more age-dependent, more for the younger guys. And that's sense of adventure. And that's Mohammed, right? He says, you know, I, I was 19. I was bored. I didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to work. This guy offered me a free ticket to Afghanistan and shoot rockets. So why not? Um, and the, the, they all were also searching for a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose, and that was also a commonality as well. But what I found interesting after talking to a lot of these people is, do, have you ever heard of a book called Tribe by Sebastian Younger? No. no. He uh, did a film called Restrepo where he was embedded with a bunch of Marines during the Afghan war. And it was one of the bloodiest outposts in in the military out there, for the U.S. military. And reading, doing a lot of research for the the film, I read a lot of books about vets and military and things like that. And I began to, like, both read and from friends of mine who were in the military, see a lot of commonalities between the two. So, for example, when you're talking about those four causes, I know a lot of men who joined the military right after 9-11, the cause, Mm -hmm. right? People like me who don't have, like, come from loads of money and, university in the United States is quite expensive. Go join the military to help pay for school, mm-hmm. right? Economic necessity. Um, a lot of friends of mine come from military fam- families, dad, uncles, brothers, all in the military, peer pressure. And a lot of people who, and they even advertise this in a lot of the, the adver- or adverts for the military is, it's an adventure, go see the world, travel the world. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have disposable income, that's a, a good way to do it. And so what I realized, it wasn't about good and evil about time and circumstance and what time and circumstance did you live in that led you to a certain decision-making process.
2: I, I hear you. I, I, I quibble with the idea of there not being good and evil to that extent, because I think there is a difference. The motivations may be similar, but there's a difference between Hijacking a civilian plane and flying it into buildings.
0: yeah, I'm not saying that's similar. I'm yeah. just saying the motivations to go into this are quite yeah but quite similar.
2: I think that the reason people would make the distinction between good and evil is if you go and join your country's military because for the same with the same motivation, the military will do lots of bad things but most of them will be by accident. They're not going to deliberately target civilians. Whereas with the terrorism issue, I think that's where a lot of people's instinctive, like, this is just pure evil thing comes in, which is you've got people, you know, and it's interesting, it's quite shocking watching watching the movie where you hear these guys talking about watching 9-11 happen. Yeah. And one of them at the beginning of the movie goes, oh, it's just a building, build a new one. Yeah, Because these people don't even at that point really think about what it is that's happened. And for some of them, it was only later when they saw it and they saw people jumping out when they were confronted with the true horror of it. And I think that's where, you know, for me at least personally, the the line. I, I don't think I want to blow that line for me. You know, there's a difference between nine eleven and joining the U.S. military. You know.
0: Yeah, there's a between difference nine eleven and joining the U.S. military. Yeah. But um, I would say that like when you're talking about body count, you have. Over 3,000 people died on 9-11. Mm. The war on terror has gone on for two decades and hundreds of th- thousands of people have died. So I think the line that you're drawing and the line that I would say that I'm drawing as well is the film is not saying that these men are right. It's not saying they're wrong. It's not trying to sympathize with us. And this is what I want to be clear on. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between sympathy and empathy. And empathy is just we're trying to understand them. And I think a lot of times in the US people conflate that. Um, For example, like I think that just the act of trying to understand someone's point of view that you don't agree with, which I love doing, uh, doesn't mean that you actually sympathize with that person, just trying to understand where they're coming from. And so I would say that the, the film walks this line between trying to understand them, but not quite sympathizing with them. And to your point, I think, that it's okay to draw lines of commonality to help you understand something, but you're not necessarily drawing that line saying they're identical, they're similar, they're the same. Right. Um, clearly, when you intentionally target civilians, right, that's very different than when you're you know, bombing like military targets. So I had this long conversation with Khalid, and for him, the reason why I became a bomb maker is because he had a degree in electrical engineering. And so the way he described it to me is that when they do an intake interview in Al-Qaeda, in al Farouk, uh, based on your level of education, your level of in, uh, intelligence, uh, your background, you go into one of three categories in terms of you're either not, you're a planner, you're an operator, or you're an executioner in terms of like you're the one they strapped the bomb to. Um, so clearly Khalid was quite intelligent and smart, so he wasn't, that wasn't his, his job. But yeah, he did train people how to make bombs for sure.
1: So there's a very clear structure and the most malleable, the most vulnerable would be the ones who do the deed, as it were. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I would say that like when I was talking to Colin and some of the other guys, during that intake interview, if you were seen as having like a, a lower uh, intelligence level or not as much education, then they would put you on those lower levels to be the ones that would you would have either have the bomb or or a lot of these guys volunteered for it as well. So uh, according to Khaled, there was like a list of... 200 people. I think he mentions it in the film. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So and, and and is that because they it's easier to manipulate that type of person and get them to do what you want? Or is it just because they see these people as load skilled and therefore expendable?
0: Well, I don't want to put words in people's mouths because mm-hmm. I've actually not done, like, interviewed yeah. any,
1: any of those people. Yeah. But I would I would
0: say that it seemed to from the description that I've gotten from a lot of these guys that was actually very organized in that aspect so if you came in for example and you had um, a level of English yeah right you we could then use you in the PR department so for example Isis had some pretty good videos in terms of the production quality in terms of like compared to earlier versions of it there's actually a book um, that is, uh, I forget the name of it, but one of the chapter is um, Cinematography, cinematography uh, for Terrorists. And basically it talks about some of the tropes they use in order to um, give a certain emotional resonance with young, young men. So this is actually quite um, well-organized and, and uh, quite thorough organization,
1: yeah. And the thing that was interesting about the film is you, the first part of it where you were looking at the rehab facility, let's just call it that, and everything that was happen, that was happening there, it, it felt very positive. But then when they reintegrated into society, you saw that for the vast majority of these men, it was impossible to reintegrate. Uh,
0: I think that had more to do with the timing mm-hmm. of when they graduated, right? So before when the, the the center was run by Mohammed bin Naif and this was his pet project, right? He uh, literally uh, invented these centers.
1: And Mohammed um, bin Nayef, just to clarify for the audience and the listeners, was sorry. He was a
2: previous uh, crown prince. He was going to be king of Saudi Arabia when yeah. the current king died, and then he got replaced by.
0: No, no, no. So he, so the current king was alive and the, and is still alive. Uh, but Mohammed bin Naif was the crown prince, which means second. It's like their vice president, yeah. the second command. Yeah, right. Um, and so when when the current king died, he was supposed to take over. That's what I
2: mean, yeah. 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 But instead of replaced. that, he got
0: replaced yes. by Mohammed bin Salman. Exactly. Um, and so, typically, like, when you have a change of leadership, you also have a change of priorities. So, for example, in the US, you had Obama signing the Paris Accord, and he was like, we're all about the environment. Trump comes in, we're like, we're not doing that anymore. Um, similar in Saudi Arabia, where you had Mohammed bin Naif, this was his pet project, he literally met almost every graduate who like left the center, He went to some of their weddings. Um, He was very involved in this process where the new crown prince, it just wasn't on the top priority for him. So these guys typically would have gotten jobs and things like this, but because of the transition in power, they kind of fell through the cracks and were left to their own devices, unfortunately.
2: Yeah. And one of the fascinating things about seeing, because you spent three years with these guys right yeah inside this facility and this facility is called the care rehabilitation center yeah it's called uh well it was
0: they changed the name recently but it was called the bahamudah knife care counseling and care center yeah or the rehab center for and for what sure. was
2: incredible is you're watching these guys who spent some of them 15 years in guantanamo they've clearly been tortured they've been mm-hmm. through horrific ordeals in there and here they are these are so according to our Western worldview, these are evil terrorists, and they've got, like, a swimming pool, sauna, daily classes on how to how to think, they're teaching them critical thinking, they're teaching them social skills, they're yeah. teaching them, I, I, I like, I found it quite funny, the scene where he's teaching them how to deal with women. Yeah. He's like, you must compliment the, the smell of the meal. <laughs> 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 goes, well, what you have to understand You're not integrating them into, into Western society. They've got I, their own standards.
1: Yeah, I did take a few notes. I was like, good point, good point, good point. Yes, I'm gonna
2: incorporate but, that. but they're great scenes, because you see the world these guys are coming from and the world that they're going back into, yeah. hopefully. Right. And that was eye opening as well, because you're seeing people who are the evilest of the evil, the, the, the vilest of the vile, the vile being treated humanely. And some of them, at least, are actually benefiting from the process. And a lot of them, you know, they claim to have an 85 percent success rate. So it is possible because we had a, a guy called Eamon Dean on the show, who's a former Al Qaeda double agent. Mm mm-hmm. And he said, like, you can't really rehabilitate terrorists. Like, it's very, very difficult. But clearly this program was having good success. It wasn't universally successful, but it was having good success. Uh, and it was fascinating to see these people being treated well. Did were you did you find that quite like a shock or would, was that natural? Did, like, how did you find that?
0: Um, so when I first uh, heard about the rehab center, I was extremely skeptical, right? Uh, for three reasons. Number one, it always struck me as strange. Why would the most conservative country in the world run a, be running a progressive rehab program for extremists? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. Two, again, Saudi Arabia is not known for its human rights record.
2: Three,
1: She's <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is putting it mildly. Very mildly. Yes. <laughs> well, you know. Uh,
0: three, I think that, like, for me, a lot of the things that I've seen from the Saudi government, especially in the press, I kind of take with a grain of salt.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so, I before I went to the rehab center, I reached out to all the journalists that I could that had been there before and asked about their experience, and they kind of all said the same thing. They're going to take you, give you like an hour PowerPoint, do a dog and pony show. They'll give you two hours. they tops, but they're pretty much not going to really learn anything new that we haven't covered. Um, and when I told them I wanted to do a documentary there, they all, they all like <laughs> laughed at me over the phone. <laughs> um, but what you have to understand is like the origin story of the center is quite interesting. And once you know that, then it makes sense why the Saudis are doing this. But when I first got there, I was extremely skeptical about this place. Because again, what the idea that I had is these were like really hardened criminals, right? And they were super into the ideology. And there's no way doing art therapy and, you know, teaching them how to, you know, balance a checkbook is going to somehow reverse that. But what I realized, spending so much time there is, number one, the idea that all these men are hardened, ideological, uh, you know, soldiers is not true. Two, there is a kind of, you know, bandwidth of like, yeah, you have, you have the leadership, who definitely, what the guy was talking about before, are a lot harder to kind of get on board to this whole rehabilitation. But the foot soldiers, some of the people that you see in the film, who aren't in that leadership, aren't in that kind of uh, upper, it's a little bit different. Um, for the, so for example, you were talking about classes like finding a wife, right? So for guys that the center calls the normal terrorists, the ones that they catch going back and forth between Syria and um, Iraq and Saudi Arabia to join ISIS or Al-Qaeda, their program's only three to four months long. The guys that are going from Guantanamo, though, their program is a year long. And the reason is twofold. Number one, they're way more radicalized because if we've just taken you for 15 years and tortured you and separated you from your family without any, like, you know, court case, you're not going to be the happiest camper in the world. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the instructors at the center say when these guys arrive from Guantanamo, the first thing they want is revenge. They want to kill the first American they see. Um, So that's one. The second reason is why it's so long compared to the other one is because again, you have someone like Ali who when he went in when he was 16, got out when he was almost 32. These are some of the most formative years in a young man's life, right? So the life skills that one picks up during that time, they did not get. Mm -hmm. For example, how to balance a budget like how to find a that. but no if if your motivation is economic necessity and you don't have funding actually learning how to do a budget is going to totally. yeah. help that like and that's what i mean in terms of you need to understand the motivations in order to understand how to deter those things
2: yeah and the world by the way has changed a lot in the last yeah. 60 yeah. years so you've kind of been deprived of like the internet didn't really exist in the same yeah, way. Yeah, these guys
0: did, literally didn't know what Google was. Right. Mm-hmm. Had no idea what yeah. Google
2: was. That's an impressive scene in, in, in a weird way in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: But it, it, it's just like you, well, a lot of people think of Guantanamo, they think of prison. It's not prison. Because in prison, you can have, your family can visit you, you can watch the t- TV, and you can learn about what's going on in the world. When these, during the Bush administration, according to you know most people I've talked to, they weren't really allowed to have any contact with the outside world, including TV. And it wasn't until Obama came in that they were allowed to have TV and things like this. And what was really interesting is most of the main characters in the film, with the exception of Khalid, didn't speak English before they went to Guantanamo. They learned English in Guantanamo. And one of my favorite scenes that we had to take out um, was when Ali tells the story of how he learned English. So he was quite young when he went to Guantanamo, 16. And uh, when Obama came in, they allowed him to have TVs. And he told me that one of the guards kind of took pity on him because he was so young and he said... You know, you're a young kid, you should be playing video games. So well, I really don't know what video games to ask for. What video games should I ask for? And the guard said, oh, you should ask for Grand Theft Auto. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Ali asked for Grand Theft Auto, and he got it. And I guess there's missions that come up on the screen, and he would pause it, and he would translate that with the dictionary, and that's how he learned English. And so when I first started uh, talking with Ali, there was some Language skills that we had to uh, remedy before we <laughs> <laughs> went on camera. Uh, so yeah, uh, Grand Theft Auto will give you a very, very specific vocabulary that maybe not be always great to use. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, and so I think for me it was it was interesting to see the juxtaposition between one administration and the other and how it affected these men. Mm-hmm. But also, again, they're shut off from the world, so they're no Facebook, no internet, no nothing, no social media, no f- smartphones. Um, At least they've been protected from that. (laughs) Well, they did pick it up quite quite quickly once they got out. It was a pretty fast intake. But I think, you know, it's things that we just don't think about, right? And so part of the that year long course is yes, it's de radicalizing these men, but it's also treating them for PTSD from Guantanamo. It's also trying to give them life skills so when they leave the center, they can get a job, find a wife have a family, because statistically, according, to, according the, to the structures of the centers, they're way less likely to get involved with these groups again if they're married and have a kid and, you know, family to take care of,
2: I think. Hey, Francis, if you were a member of the public, would you like the opportunity to ask incredible guests like Bill Burr, Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris... Adam Carolla, Brett Weinstein, John Barnes, Douglas Murray, Nigel Farage, and Lionel Shriver, your own questions. You
1: bet I would.
2: And what do you think the best way to do that would be?
1: Uh, probably stalking, mate. You'd have to corner them in the supermarket, probably run near like the sort of frozen food aisles, and then just bark questions at them before they, they can escape. Uh, not the American ones, as they have guns. And you'd have to be extra careful with the females, as that's how I got in trouble last time. Do
2: you really imagine you're going to get Douglas Murray near the frozen food aisle? If you want to ask our incredible guest questions and have access to phenomenal behind-the-scenes content, then you have to be on Our Locals.
1: That's right, for only $7 a month, you get incredible extra content, behind-the-scenes footage, giveaways, and also the chance to be part of an incredible community where you can meet and hang out with like-minded people.
2: You get access to our American vlogs as we travel across the country interviewing our heroes. An extra 20 minutes of our viral Sam Harris episode as he discusses his approach to COVID. We're also going to start doing giveaways of exclusive trigonometry merchandise like this. A poster from our Edinburgh show signed by both of us.
1: And also a House of Lords teddy, which you can only get in the House of Lords signed by the one and only Baroness Fox. Locals also gives you access to an incredible online community. You can share memes, talk about the latest episode, or even make a new friend. Or just one. Exactly, more than both of us have, really. People are now doing meetups in their city because they love locals. In fact, some people enjoy it so much, they prefer it over the show. They prefer locals to trigonometry.
2: I have to get them executed. I'm the one that goes to jail. Right. Go to trigonometry.locals.com.
1: Only $7 a month for all that incredible content. Trigonometry.locals.com. See you there, guys. And you made this film. It took three years. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. I really enjoyed it. I actually watched it on a phone because oh, I was going, blasphemy. I know, I know, I shouldn't have told you that because I was going from gig to gig and doing whatever else. But the moment I watched it, it hooked me in. It genu- I thought it was Thank you. brilliant. And normally when you watch something on a phone, you, you know, it's, it's not the way it's meant to be consumed, but it was incredible. And it's a very powerful piece of work. So you made this film and it's genuinely brilliant then what happens? Because the story takes another turn now.
0: Yeah, so it took actually longer than three years to make. It was a year, full year just to get access. Mm-hmm. Three years of filming, two years of editing, and I guess if you want to count the last years of
1: being blacklisted. Yeah.
0: So so it's a good good chunk of time. But yeah, um, you were saying what happened, where are we at now?
1: Yes, so so the story of the film, because yeah. there's a story of making the film, yeah. but then there's the story of the film itself.
0: Yeah, so the film, uh, I don't know how familiar you guys are with Sundance, but it's like the, yes. it's the holy grail for independent film festivals. Yeah, exactly. And so for documentaries in particular, it's the premiere festival. So for example, if you get a film into Sundance, most likely that film is going to be part of the IT film of the, that year. And so there's a handful of films that just are everywhere. And usually the, those are the ones that premiere at Sundance. For example... When we got into Sundance, um, the PR guy that we were working with, he's like, I've watched every single film at Sundance this year because everyone wanted him to rep his film. And he said, this film, this film is the only one that like stuck with me. I'm like still thinking about it. He's like, this is going to be the the front runner for the Oscars. This is is going to be the film of the year. And so it's that kind of platform that Sundance allows you to have. Mm -hmm. And so typically, normally, it will launch a film and... The issues brought up in the film, the stories are brought up, in the film, is something that we're going to be talking about for that entire year, and in doing so, it also launches the career of people who made the film, be it the director, the producer, the animators on this film, and it kind of just levels up your your playing field in terms of your your career. But the opposite happened, mm. unfortunately. And why? Uh, that is a good question.
2: Mm-hmm. I know it is. I, I, I want to know the exact yeah, answer. Um, I,
0: th- I would say that in the beginning, I didn't quite understand it. But like I said, there's three types of people in the world. And I'm the third. When you someone hits you, I ask why. So I did a huge deep dive into this and um, read a lot of books, uh, did a lot of investigative journalism, tried to figure out what was, what was the cause, what was the epicenter, how this all come about? Because um, what you have to understand is while you're making a film, at least while I'm making a film, while I'm editing it, I don't just edit it by myself, I do test screenings. So we'll have audiences come in, various audiences. So for example, we screened this for Muslims, Yemenis, guards at Guantanamo, uh, conservatives, liberals, progressive, all across the board, old, young, everything. And you do that to make sure one, the film that you're making is making sense, but two, especially for this film, am I missing something? Uh, Because I knew that this film was gonna get attacked. I didn't think it was going to be from the left, though. I was pretty sure it was going to be from the right. Um, and so in all those feedback sessions, we kind of, over time, made this film quite nuanced, quite complex, and, and for lack of a better term, like tried to make it as bomb-proof, i.e. like do our due diligence, fact-checking, all this stuff as possible. Yeah. Um, and so when we got in the Sundance, we were just elated. And um, then they announced... The lineup and so they announced lineup almost about two months a little bit less than two months before you actually Start the festival so they announced on the 9th of December and the film premiered on the 22nd of January and The day after they announced the film before anyone had seen it the film just started to get attacked online by Initially, we didn't know who the people were and initially this is what I thought to be completely honest I think most people would have said that oh, this person's attacking my film, they haven't seen it, screw them. That was not my initial response. Uh, Having lived in the Middle East for a very long time, having had a lot of really close friends and people that I consider family who are Muslims in the U.S., I was well aware of the last 20 years in the United States, being a Muslim in the U.S. has been a lot harder after 9-11 on a plethora of levels. For example, someone that I consider my sister, Uh, when she moved from here, from the Middle East, um, she wears the hijab and she was like three steps out of the uh, um, airport and someone spit in her face and told her to go back to where she came from. And this is one incident, but over 20 years, those things add up. And so it can be quite uh, traumatizing for someone over a long period of time. And so what I initially thought was, okay, here's a population of people who have seen all these negative tropes be portrayed in the media of Muslims, that reinforces negative stereotypes, that is sensationalistic. Um, And they probably think that this film is like every other film that's been made about terrorism. But if it were, to be fair, there's no way Sundance would have programmed it. Um, So I thought this was just a big misunderstanding. And I thought once they see the film, like they'll realize that this is very, very different from what people are perceiving it to be. And so I, I reached out via Sundance because they were contacting Sundance directly, or like requiring that they like, you know, pull the film and do all this other stuff. Um, and so Sundance was getting really worried and they were starting to waver, or they seemed like they were starting to waver. And so I offered through Sundance and through a different organization because at that time I didn't know who these people were to come and screen the film before Sundance. And according to someone at the festival, they said in the history of this, of Sundance, no one's ever offered to show their film to the group of people attacking it Mm -hmm. before it actually premieres. But that's how certain I was that this was a misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. And then they got back to us and they said we don't want to, because I offered to fly down to L.A. with me and my executive producer, Mohammed, who's Yemeni. And I I said me and Mohammed will fly down, we'll answer any questions you have. We'll show you the film because we're still editing at that point. So if you actually have some really good notes, we'll probably take them. And then you could we can have a discussion afterwards. Um, and they got back to us and said, we don't want to talk with Meg. We don't want to talk with Muhammad. We don't want to watch the film. We only want to go through Sundance. And we're insulted that you even asked us to sign an NDA, which we ask everyone to do mm-hmm. who watches the film before the premiere. It's pretty industry standard. And at that point, I was like, I don't really know what else I can do because... I can't have a discussion with someone about a film that they haven't seen. And so, <laughs> and so uh, the, uh, the attacks continued. Right. Uh, until, yeah, so for those six weeks, two months, whatever it was, um, and what I didn't realize what, was how strong confirmation bias was. And what I mean by that is for almost two months, you had people going in chat rooms and going on messaging boards and on Twitter and writing letters saying things about this film, uh, having not seen it, like the film is propaganda for the Saudis, it's funded by the Saudis. Uh, the, it's an all-white film crew and they don't know anything about the Middle East and, and uh, they just lucked into this or they've been hoodwinked by the Saudi government to do this thing. Again, they had not seen it. And so once you see the film, And that's something that's been so frustrating is I've realized that the best defense against all these accusations and against all these attacks is the film itself.
2: Right, I agree. Yeah. Well, this is one of of the things that we didn't actually talk about just very briefly. The ending of the film was fascinating to me because... uh, up until that point, you're basically looking at the story of a bunch of people who went to Guantanamo Bay. Some of them uh, some of them were hardened terrorists. Some of them were, were there. Some were by accident. Some of them got, got drawn in, blah, blah, blah. And you're watching them be rehabilitated. And as I said, you cover the fact that not all of them are successfully rehabilitated, yeah. but most of them are. And you're watching that process. You're going, well, this is interesting. And then towards the end of the movie, there's a little switcheroo because as we talked about already, the guy who founded the center gets replaced. Mm-hmm. In fact, he gets arrested. Mohammed bin Salman takes over. And suddenly, this center isn't doing what he was doing at all anymore. And one of the most charismatic teachers of the center, who was there with a the big smile on his face, teaching these men how to live life and whatever, when you try to speak to him post the, tr- the transfer of power, yeah. he's like a robot. And he's refusing to answer your questions. And I'm very familiar with this being from Russia where you have a strong dictator at the top. Mm -hmm. And if he doesn't want something to happen, everyone else is terrified. And they'll just pretend that the thing that they used to do for 10 years up until right now was the exact opposite of what actually happened. And so that authoritarianism, really shows, through. So the idea that this was a film funded by the Saudis, I mean, that is just ridiculous. And anyone yeah. who's seen it would, would would get it. But you mentioned left and right. And I can see, I suppose, why some on the right would at least instinctively not want to engage with this, right? Well, yeah. I mean,
0: again, when we were doing the test screenings, most of the criticisms that we got in the test screenings were from people who were on the right and said, listen, you need to tell, tell me exactly what these men have done and you need to make them confess exactly what they've done. And my response to that was always like, listen, the U.S. government had these men for a decade and a half and they have, with all the resources in the world, could not produce enough evidence to be on a shadow of a doubt to be able to charge and convict these men and specifically say what they did and did not do. And the New York Times also did a podcast called Caliphate, I don't know if you're familiar with it, with all the resources of the New York Times, they did this, this amazing podcast, uh, it won all these awards, and later they found out that all of this was false and based on a lie. It's Huge controversy in the journalism world. Mm-hmm. Now, if the New York Times, the US government, with a bazillion more resources than I have, can't do this, then there's no way that I can. Right. So I chose to, when you introduce the men or when you see them in one shot, we have the dossier and the, the, of what the American government says. They said, these are the things that we are accusing these men of doing. But then for the next 90 minutes of the film, the men tell their side. And if it's important to you, you can make up your own mind. But for me, the, f- the film wasn't about the what they did specifically, but the why. Because the what is done. Can't do anything about it now. And it, and But I think for me, what was really, really interesting for me is trying to figure out the why. Because the why is something that we can actually work with and move forward.
2: No, I, I totally get it. I, I was mainly focusing on... What are, who are the sort of people that may be critical of it? Yeah. And as I say, I can see why people on the right yeah. may have some reservations about it, even though I haven't seen the film. I think those reservations are unfounded. Yeah, uh, I think people on the right can watch that movie and enjoy it and think it's valuable and and a great movie personally. Um, but the left, why is the left upset about it? or people on the left?
0: Um. So. I wouldn't say a people. It's, it's a small group of. So, the, the people who found out later that were attacking the film were two groups. One was a group of six documentary filmmakers who were Muslim. And according to uh, people at Sundance, they would applied to Sundance and not gotten in. <laughs> um, and, and I think that for me, if you are attacking a film that you haven't seen, um, and you're attacking a person that you've never met, uh, then the problem is not with me, with me or the film. What, what I mean by that is, um, we talked before about having um, 20 years of kind of really, really, really being discriminated against in the United States if you're Muslim. And so I can understand the knee jerk reaction to this film. However, I also feel like, in general, I think the, the people attacking the film. Hadn't seen it and there was preconceived notions of what it was mm-hmm. and I think so we live in a world today where once you plant a flag Right, it's very few people have the courage to pick that up and say I was wrong But also even they watch the film and but they what didn't... is
2: their criticism of the film? Uh,
0: so it's kind of changed over time
2: it doesn't surprise me
0: <laughs> so initially The criticism was it was Saudi propaganda fed by the Saudis Mm -hmm. and people saw the film and realized that's not true. And then it was like, okay, the problem with this film, it was done by an all-white film team and they just lucked into this and they didn't know what they were doing. And then clearly no one did a background check on me or the team because our executive producer is Muslim, the co-producer is Muslim, assistant editor is Muslim. And we consulted with two Islamic scholars and an imam for this film which is one of the reasons why it's such a nuanced, like really deep dive into this world. I don't think that could have been done without that input.
2: What I'm trying to get at is why are people refusing to show your film?
0: The reason to show the film is fear. Um, So for example, when the attack started on the film and um, on me, again, it reminded me of a, so when I was a firefighter, I went on this call, and this guy's kid had been seriously hurt. Uh, we show up, and, you know, the mother's crying, the kid's bleeding out, and the, but the father is irately pissed, and he's yelling at us. Where the fuck have you been? What the fucking took you so long? You're so fucking incompetent. Rage, rage directed the people that were trying to help him. And I remember after we got him, the kid packed up and, and in the ambulance and they were out of earshot, one of the other firefighters said to me, that guy's lucky I didn't fucking deck him. And our captain turned around and said something that I will never forget. He's like, listen, what you have to understand about the job that you do is you're meeting people at the most traumatic moment of their lives. And everyone responds differently to trauma. Some people cry, some people laugh, And some people lash out in anger. And this is how this guy was processing his trauma. And so that always stuck with me. And so when the initial attacks on the film happened, I thought that's what it was, right? So, again, these people haven't seen the film. They have never met me. But the attacks on the film were so ferocious. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I remember my captain saying, even though this man is angry at you, it's not about you. Because he's never met you and that was what i was feeling at the time but later what i found out or what i came to kind of discover is that there's a group of people in 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 the documentary world that believe that if you are not from a community you should
2: not be allowed to <laughs> this is not a new tell. story to us yeah. you basically if you're a, if you're not black you can't make jokes about Black people. If you're not this, you can't make movies about mm. that. That's the, it's the identity, the infiltration of identity into everything we do now, right? And and that's what you find yourself on. Yeah,
0: that th- that was that was a quite a big part of it. I think a lot of it also is with you know, Sundance. The stakes are so high; they take few films, and so when one of the few films that they programmed was directed by a white non-Muslim. And that was something that was a bit bitter pill for some people to swallow and, and called Sundance out on that quite ferociously on, on, on Twitter. And after a while, the pressure mounted to such a apex that uh, Sundance um, eventually apologized for programming the film, not once, but twice. And in doing so, they sent a signal to the rest of the film industry that there was something innately wrong with this film. Because to my knowledge, I don't think Sundance has ever apologized for any film that they've programmed. And they've done a lot of really fucking edgy films that were very challenging and pissed off a lot of people. Um, But by apologizing for this film, it sent a signal. And when that happened, South by Southwest pulled the film. Uh, San Francisco Documentary Film Festival pulled the film and also took back an award that they had given us, the Vanguard Award. And it just kind of um, had a knock-on effect from there. And it basically, the film was blacklisted. And it wasn't until almost a year later uh, when a very intrepid and well-respected journalist, investigative journalist, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist, did a, I think a four-month deep dive into this uh, for the New York Times. And it wound up on the front page of the Sunday Times. And that was the first time that people actually said, hey, maybe maybe we should take a second look at that. What's really interesting, though, is actually he wasn't the first person to write about it, but he was the first time people took it seriously before. Um, right after Sundance, um, the lead film critic and, and TV critic at the LA Times is Muslim, Lorraine Ellie, brilliant woman, and she watched the film and she wrote this whole piece about like, listen, I'm a Muslim, and I love this film, and here's all the reasons why. We should not be canceling this film. This is a film that's going to do more good than harm. And she was then attacked online by this group. And then another Muslim, who's a very well-respected investigative journalist, uh, Zaid Jalani, I think is his last name. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Probably not. He did a piece. Um, I think the actual title of it was Jihad Rehab is about compassion, not bigotry. And so he had two very well-respected Muslim journalists and film critics defending the film. But even with that, that... Yeah, you're a white woman,
2: yeah. though, so...
1: That's how it works. It is how it works. Meg, what was the official line that you were given as to why Sundance dropped your film, as to why South by Southwest, San Francisco, all incredibly prestigious film festivals for people not aware, South by Southwest, Sundance, I mean, they're they're the very apex of documentary filmmaking. What was the official line that you were given as to why your film was no longer being screened?
0: well the, the so Sundance did screen it but then they apologized for it which was was basically like once you do that uh, they apologized for programming and, and showing it to people and the quote was because showing the film hel- hurt the muslim community is what the the reason they gave for apologizing but the problem is that it just wasn't true and mm. they knew it wasn't true because while all the attacks were happening Sundance before the film premiere was starting to waver and I asked someone that I really trusted. I not. I don't know what to do. I think Sundance is actually gonna pull this film before it ever premieres." And he, he said, like, well, there's a lot of people who are organized, who haven't seen the film from the Muslim community, the filmmakers, mm-hmm. who are trying to pull it. You know loads of Muslims who've seen the film, who've worked on the film, who love this film, have them write letters to Sundance. Mm-hmm. Ask them on to, to like tell Sundance why this is important to them. And they did. And so Sundance knew that there was a lo- large portion of the Muslim community who really supported this film. But because of these six filmmakers, were so well organized and because Twitter is, uh, you can go on Twitter and tweet 100 times a day and it seems like the whole world hates you, but it's actually only half a dozen people. And so the magic of social media is you can amplify a voice to a disproportionate level where it feels like a cacophony, but it's actually just a whisper.
1: And what effect do you think that's going to have on documentary films as a genre? Because to me, the best documentary films are films like yours, where you go and tackle a subject that is taboo, that we do, that all these types of narratives are spread about this particular issue, and then you debunk them. Yeah. So what message does that send to the, the entire industry? Honestly, uh, this is something that I've thought about
0: for a while now, because I think... Initially, you're always like, what about my film? What about my team? Uh, What about all the people who worked on this? But then after a while, when you sit with it, you start thinking a little bit bigger. And for me, one of the reasons why I got into independent documentary filmmaking is because there's no fucking way this film would ever have been made by a broadcaster or a studio. And what I love about the independent space, it allows you to dive into these subjects in a way that does challenge people's perspective, that does push the boundaries, that will ruffle feathers. And, you know, the ultimate platform for that independent space, for that independent voice is, or it used to be, Sundance. And so in terms of the whole freedom of expression movement, freedom of the arts movement, I naively thought, like, yes, there's all these other places that are, like, you know, clamping down, but we're independent filmmakers. We're independent. That's whole world. The whole reason we do this is because we're not bound by advertisers or, or, you know, shareholders. And what I realized was that freedom of expression and freedom in the arts is not a hill to die on. It is the hill. It is the hill. And for me, early on, when a lot of people who I was working with and who was advising me said, just apologize, just apologize. And I asked, you know, what am I apologizing for? Like, what did I do wrong? If there's something in the film that is factually inaccurate and that we fucked up, yes, I will. When you do something wrong, you should apologize. But for me, apologizing or apologies are not performative. Like, if I fuck you over, I'm gonna pull you aside, face to face, and genuinely say, like,
2: I. You deserved that. it.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, yeah. I think that, like, like for me, you know, I make mistakes all the time.
2: Of course, when you do something wrong, you should apologize. Yes, of course, I get it. But, but you didn't do anything but wrong. But when
0: you don't, and the thing is, I think what what you don't realize is, is it wasn't just me r- right away saying I didn't do anything wrong. I literally took a step back when we got all these attacks right after Sundance. I did some test screenings because I thought, shit. When someone comes at you that hard, my instinct was, did I miss something? So we had three test screens right after Sundance. The first one was a group of people that were mixed in terms of like you had. So I, I asked them, I said, raise your hand if you've never heard about this film before. Half the people raised their hand. It's okay, raise your hand if you've gone on Twitter, you know what the controversy, read some of these op-eds. The other half raised their hand. They watched the film. I swear to God, down the line, everyone that came to the film cold loved the film. Everything that went on Twitter first had all these issues with it. I was like, okay, this is really interesting. What's the, you know, they filled all these like feedback forms. I said, what's the biggest issue of the film? This woman raised her hand and she said, clearly these men didn't want to be filmed and they were uncomfortable with you and they were scared for their life. And again, we screened the film 30 times before. But that's science, not how they
2: come across And we
0: never had that feedback.
2: Yeah. That's and not I, how they come across. It's not true.
0: Yes, but 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 th- they saw this somehow.
2: So Meg, let me But on- I just want to finish this. Yeah, so,
0: so so, I asked her, I was like, what in the film specifically gave you that impression? And she said, well, it was clear as day in that scene where Nader goes on furlough, where his cousin says, you know, we took two buildings from you, but you took two countries from us. Mm. The whole entire time you're talking to his cousin, Nader's not even looking at you. He's not even talking to you. He's just looking straight ahead. So clearly he doesn't want to be filmed. And clearly he doesn't want you to be filming him because he won't even look at you. I said, okay. Uh, Would it change your mind at all to know that when you're making a documentary film, if there's a TV or radio on the background, you have to mute it. Otherwise you can't cut the footage together. And that particular time, Nader, who's a huge soccer fan, his favorite team was playing on the TV. And I'm filming this way and the TV is behind me. So the reason he's staring straight ahead and not engaged because it's a tight game. He can give two shits about my conversation (laughs) about politics. He wants to know if Dihad's gonna win. And what I mean by that is that experience of that test screening made me realize how strong confirmation bias can be. I.e. if I saw someone, you know, uh, how do you say your first name
2: again? My brain's farting. I know. I want you to fuck it up so I can get back at you. It's Constantine.
0: Constantine. Right? Constantine or Constantine? Constantine. Constantine. If I said Constantine was a secret Nazi... You're like, no, I've known him from years. He's, he's fine. He's like a good guy.
2: I mean, you wouldn't be the first person to say that, even though I'm <laughs> but, Jewish.
0: But like a lot of people like said this enough times about you. I'd be like, hmm, and then I go to your house and I see you have a guidebook for Germany. I was like, shit, that, that confirms it. Mm-hmm, I've right. heard all these things. And he, why would he have a guidebook from Germany? And it's just that that confirmation bias is so strong. So the next screening we did, I was like, okay, I want to do a screening where you want to find a group of people. If they were going to be pissed off about this film. It would be them. So young, politically active. So I went to the Yemeni Student Union and we screened the film. Cold. I didn't tell them the title. I didn't tell them anything about it. They loved it. One guy didn't. One guy said we we were too soft on the Saudis and he wanted us to do in the whole entire history of the Middle East and how all the bad things Saudi Arabia did. I said, maybe, but that's a different film. Um, And then we did another test screening and we found the same thing. So once I did three test screenings, And we had the same kind of positive reaction we did before Sundance. I then sent it to experts like Lawrence Wright, who also watched the film. People who are really experts in this field. And they all got back and said, this film's brilliant. And so once I knew that, once I knew for beyond a shadow of a doubt that I didn't miss something, that's when I was like, I'm not fucking apologizing for this shit. Because there's nothing wrong with this film.
2: Well, I love what you said in the entire monologue there and I love sorry when, that was, I, no, no, it was great I, I didn't use the word monologue sarcastically I, th- I thought what you said was brilliant and I agree with it completely um, particularly about freedom of expression and freedom in the arts which is as we talked before we started why we started our show you know we were two comedians and so the question it's a leading question but I am curious to ask you anyway have you considered the possibility that attacks and criticism of your film are not well intentioned I know this is unlikely for you because you always want to understand the yeah. other people. But understanding other people doesn't necessarily mean giving them an undue benefit of the doubt.
0: Uh, here's the thing. When I told you this, I thought that in the beginning. But since then, I've done quite a lot of research. Mm-hmm. I was holding that belief until March, mid-March, when someone sent me a video. Um, So, like I said, we'd we'd reached out to this group and we didn't know who they were at first, but after Sundance we did. And so my producer actually knew one of the leaders of this group. And he emailed her several times asking to meet her face-to-face and to have a human-like conversation about their concerns with this film. Because all this stuff that they've been accusing this of could be answered if they either watched the film or talked to me about how the film was made. I think he reached out to her over a half dozen times. Every time she said, I don't want to talk to you. Like, I'm not going to help rehab this film. Uh, It's not, now it's even bigger than your film. It's not about your film anymore. It's about the movement. And so I was, we were trying to reach out to him. And I thought this was all in good faith. Then mid-March comes around. The same person goes on a panel discussion about my film. So a bunch of people got together and decided they needed to have a panel discussion about how horrible my film was and during the panel discussions she says, we have all these questions and the filmmakers aren't talking to us. They won't answer any of our questions. Mm -hmm. They won't speak to us. So clearly they're guilty of everything that we're accusing them of. Mm -hmm. Now once I saw that, my response was, you're trying to tell me that my ethics are in question where you're supposed to be a truth teller, a journalist, a documentary filmmaker, and you're fucking straight up lying Mm -hmm. and misrepresenting both my film my team and me. Right. And so that's when I stopped what you were saying, being gracious and being trying to give someone the benefit of the doubt. Because I want everyone to do that for me. And so I will give you the benefit of the doubt because I would want someone to do the same. Sure. But when I see you lying, flat out lying, misrepresenting, when you attack the people, my team. So for example, they took screenshots of our credits and reached out to all the people in the industry in our credits. And, and basically harass them and threaten them and encourage them to take their name off the film. Um, and I had, you know, team members who received calls and who literally were crying for like an hour and a half afterwards. And so for me, there's a difference between criticizing a film, which is normal, or a book. Like you just you came out with a book. There's going to be people who going to read your book and not like it. They're going to go on Twitter and be like, in chapter four, he says this, and I disagree with that. That's fine. How did you know chapter four? (laughs) It is literally chapter four. four? Is it chapter four? Read chapter four. Okay, (laughs) vibing.
1: And they were my (laughs) tweaks.
0: But I think like, but that's the deal that you make, right? Right. You you write a book, you make a movie, you put it out in the public space. Part of that is you're going to get criticism. However, there's a difference between someone criticizing your work, which a lot of times actually makes you a better writer, right? -hmm. right? Makes you a better storyteller. And then trying to actually blacklist your book, Mm -hmm. trying to Get it banned or trying to basically cancel you and your whole entire career. I agree. And I think there's a difference between, you know, inquiry and inquisition. And we are
1: definitely in inquisition territory here. I agree with you. Do you have a website or do you plan to have a website? Because if you do, then EasyDNS is a company for you. EasyDNS is the perfect domain name registrar provider and web host for you. They have a track record of standing up for their clients, whether it be cancel culture, de-platform attacks, or overzealous government agencies.
2: He knows about that. So will you in a second. (laughs) EasyDNS have rock-solid network
1: infrastructure and fantastic customer support. They're in your corner no matter what the world throws at you. Unless it's your ex girlfriend, in which case you're on your own. You
2: know about that.
1: (laughs) Move your domains and websites over to EasyDNS
2: right now. All you've got to do is go to EasyDNS.com forward slash triggered. That's EasyDNS.com forward slash triggered. Use our promo code, which is also triggered,
1: and get 50% off the initial purchase. Sign up for their newsletter, Access of Easy, which tells you everything you need to know about technology, privacy, and censorship.
2: Where do you think the motivation comes from then?
0: I think there's two different places. Mm-hmm. So the two different groups that attacked the film are... One was a group of independent filmmakers. And I think um, there was people wanting their their work to have that acknowledgement. Yep. Wanting their work to have be platformed by Sundance.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And there was another group that I don't know if you're familiar with them. Uh, actually based in the U.K. called Cage. And I talked to a lot of experts who know way more about that group than me, and they were described to me as they're an activist group in the U.K. that one of the narratives they push is that everyone in Guantanamo was completely innocent and never did anything wrong. And that's true for a lot of the people that went to Guantanamo, but that's not true for everyone, and that's not true for the people in my film. And I specifically cast these people because from their own mouth, they let you know their level of involvement. And so basically this expert told me that this group will attack any book or movie that challenges that narrative ferociously with anything from legal threats to misinformation campaigns. They have a reputation according to a lot of the experts that I took as being a very nefarious group. And the the really scary thing was is you had a group like that that was basically teaming up with a group of progressive independent filmmakers Mm -hmm. to attack a film. So It was. It made for really strange bedfellows.
2: And there's also the identity angle too. Yeah. Right. Which is, uh, I don't know how where you you are of this, but there's a big war going on uh, in the sort of cultural space. Yeah. And you found yourself in the middle of that. It seems like to me as well. Well, I
0: think I think yes, but I think for me, I was I come from a maybe a different kind of era, where it doesn't matter if you're Russian or you're British or you're Filipino.
2: It's the work, mm, right? So you're racist like us. Good. <laughs> no, I mean, but, that, the, but that's how it works. The work should, because there's, well, there's, well, of course, because the point is that we're all different people, right? But it's about the thing that you created, not your skin color. That's the idea, right? The idea for me
0: is, is, is that you listen. When I first started interviewing these guys, mm. if you go on look on paper, we have fucking nothing in common. Mm. So, for example, the guy that I kind of bonded with the, the quickest was Natter. Uh, The reason for that is when you're a firefighter, you see a lot of horrific shit Mm -hmm. and you also get to be exposed to some of the worst things humans can do to one another Mm -hmm. on a pretty regular basis. And in order to make it through that job, you have to find a way to process that stuff and to decompress. And how firefighters, at least the ones I worked with, chose to do that was through humor. And not like the knock knock joke. This is like politically dark, inc- politically incorrect humor that in any other environment would get you fired. But it was just a necessity sometimes to get through the day. And so I've, I, that kind of humor I've only seen in one other profession: military folks who've seen combat. Outside of that group, if you if you if you heard those jokes, it would just never land right, right? You'd come off some kind of like psychopath about joking about trauma and tragedy. And I never had that kind of interaction with someone else outside those two kind of group of friends of mine until I met Nader. When I first met Nader and we sat down one-on-one, he told me about his time in Guantanamo and things that were done to him. But he did this all with a smile on his face Mm -hmm. through bouts of uncontrolled laughter and through really, really dark jokes. And everyone in that room thought that Nader was some kind of psychopath or was just a flat out line but I knew better. Not because I had a crystal ball, not because I was some kind of mind reader, but he told the same kind of jokes that my fighter buddies told me. Mm-hmm. So that meant to me that he was still processing this trauma. He was still like working through it. And so for me, he would tell a joke and I would tell one back and we found this like immediate rapport and connection over a shared love of inappropriate humor, right? And the reason why I tell that story is because there were people in that room that on paper had way more in common with him. Same sex, same religion, same ethnicity. But no one got that level except for me. And that was because we had a shared life experience of going through a really shitty situation and having to use humor to deal with it. And what I mean by that is humans are more than the boxes that you would check on some census. We're made up of so many plethora of other interesting things that they don't even have boxes for. And I think because of that I'm able to have friends who aren't my same race or, or sexual identity or, or whatever. And that's what makes us beautiful as human beings. As we're so, we have so many interests and so many experiences that make us who we are and I think that sometimes we forget that. And there's a lot of people that I probably have more in common with on paper but would not get the kind of jokes that Nader did. He told me once he was like, "Mate, you should go on Guantanamo diet. You lose forty pounds in one month. You look really good." <laughs> and, he's, and he's talking about, you know, hunger strikes. He's got yeah. cho- he's joking about hunger strikes. And I think that what you have to realize is that when you're talking about connecting with another human being, what you see on a paper is just it literally is that deep in terms of what makes us who we are. And so when you're talking about identity, yes, I think there's something to be said about a story being told from an inside perspective, because that's a definitely different perspective that I couldn't give. But there's also a lot of validity to an outside perspective. For example, I was a firefighter on 9-11. I had really strong feelings about this whole thing from the get-go and from a very different perspective. And when 9-11 happened, I saw my country as the victim. But then when I moved to the Middle East and I moved to Yemen and I saw what my own government was doing in the region, I looked at my country as a perpetrator. And so I had like one foot in each camp. Mm -hmm. So as I was making this film that was constantly on my mind and I was thinking about my firefighter buddies and what we went through. But I was also thinking about all the Yemeni friends that I made and family in Yemen and all the people that got disappeared or thrown in Guantanamo or like the, the random drone bombings. And I think that those two life experiences gave me a very unique perspective, not just to make this film but into this world. Yep. I don't know if that. Did I ramble on? Just tell me no, <laughs> no, that's, no, no that's,
2: you you said
1: that beautifully. That's a brilliant summation of why you made this film, which was so powerful and had such a, an impact on the audience who watched it and particularly on me. So what does the future now hold for you, Meg, and your film?
0: Yeah, so basically we've pretty much been blacklisted for the entire year and untouchable. Uh, Very fortunate that uh, the film was talked about and vindicated on the cover of the New York Times, the National Review, the Atlantic, Sam Harris podcast. And the whole reason why we're here is because right after it appeared on the cover of the, the New York Times, a bunch of people reached out and said, how can we help? This seems like a huge injustice. Like, can, do you have a GoFundMe? I'm like, I don't, but maybe I should make one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I made a GoFundMe, um, and I think we got like $3,000. Uh, I think a thousand of that was probably from my family. <laughs> <laughs> like, all scrumping together. Um, and then uh, I went on the Sam Harris podcast and had a long conversation with him about the film and, and, and what was happening to it. And he was very generous and put it up without a paywall. So anyone could kind of listen to it. And so people forwarded on, it kind of went viral. And the GoFundMe went from 3,000 to three quarters of a million. And so we were able to bring the film to theaters. And so right now what we're trying to do is bring the film to people, to be able for them to see it and make up their own mind. And one of the reasons why we're in Britain is we had loads of people reach out from the UK who were Sam Harris listeners or listened to the podcast and just were like, please, we'd love to see this film. So that was one reason. Another reason is we had someone from BAFTA reach out Mm -hmm. and they were curious and so I sent them a link and they're like, this film is like BAFTA worthy. Like you should bring it over here and like qualify it for BAFTA. Maybe the British public will give you a fair shake where the Americans didn't. And um, so we came over here and the reason why we're playing at the art house Crouch End in London is to basically for the BAFTA qualification. And so all this month until I think December 30th, BAFTA members are voting for best documentary, best foreign language film, best director, these kinds of things. I know it's a long shot, but one of the reasons we're doing this is Sundance is such a well-respected entity. By them apologizing for the film, made it radioactive. And even though we have all these other institutions like the New York Times and the Atlantic vindicating the film, unfortunately within the small fishbowl that is the film industry, the film industry, we're still pretty radioactive. And so the only way to kind of undo that is to have an, another entity within the film industry validate the film. And so that's probably only going to be either the Academy or BAFTA. And I'm not holding my breath for the Academy. But I'm hoping, I went into the BBC today to give an interview, and on the on the cover, or on the cover of the side of the building, there was this quote, I think it said something like, um, oh, it was something like,
2: George Orwell.
0: It, yeah, it was and a, if liberty, liberty is anything, is, yeah. it's telling people what they don't want to, telling people things they don't want to hear. Yeah. And I saw that as kind of like an omen before I went into the interview. Mm-hmm. I was like, maybe this, maybe this country is different. Maybe they care about um, freedom of expression, freedom of well, the arts.
2: We won't disabuse you of that. But no. <laughs> uh, the, the BBC has long since abandoned that. Anyway, um, Meg, it's a brilliant film, uh, and I think the way you talk about these issues is really important, actually. Um, and I'm really... You know, I'm so grateful because on Trigonometry, we often talk to people who've had things cancelled or have been denied an opportunity because they said the wrong thing or they've got the wrong skin colour whatever. But actually, I'm just really grateful that we've encountered your film that otherwise we probably wouldn't have seen as a result of everything that's happening. So wish you all the best. Uh, maybe at some point the film could be available online for people to pay and watch. Yeah,
0: so my hope is um, we bring the film to the kind of game plan right now is try to try to get it, get it a to for at least a nomination, some kind of validation within the film industry. And if from that, hopefully that emboldens some distributors or buyers or streamers or broadcasters to pick it up. Uh, hint, hint, HBO, Netflix. But... <laughs> <laughs> um, But... uh, It's worthy of it. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that, but also I've talked to a lot of people who've done self-distribution. And my goal for the film is to have as many people watch it as possible. Because I do think that so many people who've seen the film in London have had such a huge positive impact from watching the film. And I think that it's a disservice that more more people can't see it. And so when I was talking to my friend who does self-distribution, he said, Listen, you're never gonna get the audience size putting on like some random website with a paywall behind it that you will if it goes on Netflix or HBO or something like that. So the, the goal now is to try to get some kind of validation within the film world to be able to give those buyers maybe a little bit of bravery to be able to pick the film up. If that does not happen, plan B is to self-distribute online. So take the film out, show it to all these different kind of people in different places around the world build an audience of people who've really seen the film so that way when the film does go up a line eventually what happened at Sundance won't happen again you won't have a bunch of people just telling you what the film's about and no one's seen it you'd have people that have seen the film and can defend it when these lies kind of come up again which they will and I think for me because there's just me and staff just the two of us we don't have a huge team that takes time so right now we're working to try to find a way to it up online which takes like a couple months unfortunately but it's a it's a long process it's that's around three months to get something up online like this
2: well if you do end up going in that self-distribution direction we'd love to help in any way yeah that would be awesome of course of course i really think more people should see it and i also think people who are as nuanced and as sensible about these things as you are um you know, this is the problem with the world that we live in at the moment. It is the sensible people. It is the people who are balanced. It is the people who are in the center that are the most vulnerable. Uh, if, you, if you made a film talking about how Muslims are all terrorists, there would be a large audience for that, and the fact that people on the left tried to cancel you would only help you promote yeah. the film. And if you'd made a film about how all terrorists are actually innocent, there'd be a large audience on the other side of the political spectrum, and the fact that the right was attacking it would help you. But because you actually have taken a sensible and reasonable and balanced position, that's why you're left without a big tribe on your team and that's why it's become as hard and to me that's the real tragedy of the cultural moment that we're in is people like you who are who are prevented from making things that actually matter and are actually good
0: and the knock-on effect unfortunately has been even worse than that so what i mean by that is so when sundance apologized for the film there was another film at sundance the same year as me called the exiles and a different group then started to go after that group and on twitter they cited their reason for them going after the exiles was that they cited the success that the group had come after me and garnished Sundance Apology. And so that inspired other people to try to take out other films. The knock-on effect being, at the end of the day, if you take it to this natural ending, then film festivals and programmers are only going to program safe films, which then does a disservice to the populace that don't get exposed to these other stories. And one thing that's been extremely alarming for me is I spent over a half-day, decade, Uh, interviewing men, Mm. who a lot of them ascribe to a certain ideology, right? You're either this type of specific Salafi Muslim, either believe these specific things and act this specific way. And if you deviate just a little bit, then you're not a real Muslim, then you're an infidel and you can be targeted. I then come back to my home country and I see something that's quite alarming. And it's a very similar kind of feel of an ideology but in a different iteration. For example, you're either this type of progressive liberal. You have to believe these specific things of the day. But if you deviate just a little bit, then you're not a real liberal. You're not a real progressive. You're sexist, you're homophobic, you're racist, and you can be targeted. And for me, I've been in a world where that goes to its natural fruition, and it's scary. And so seeing that kind of Ideology, and I do mean the word ideology, because there are people who I know personally, who I considered friends, who didn't watch the film, but then decided to go online and just badmouth it and me, because they believed that that was the right thing to do, be it virtue signaling or be it they thought it was a, it was a righteous cause. And what I mean by that is, the reason why I don't think these people are evil or these people are mean these people or bad people, it's just what you have to understand about the documentary community, it's made up of a lot of people who really want to do good in the world, Mm -hmm. who really wanna change the world to be a better place. The only downside of that is in that environment, it's also extremely easy to weaponize empathy.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And so if you're trying to be supportive of a minority group and someone tells you that this film is hurtful, you believe that minority group, and you want to help champion their cause. But the problem is, when you're a journalist, and you're a truth teller, and you're a documentary filmmaker, before you jump on any bagwagon, your whole job is to do your due diligence. So if you can't even watch a two-hour film before chiming in, if that's too much energy for you to do, then you are not a journalist. You are an activist that writes. You are not a documentarian. You're an activist with a camera. And so for me, I do draw the line between being a journalist, being a documentarian, and being an activist. And I think that those lines have been gotten blurred lately, and unfortunately, it's had a very negative knock-on effect, both in journalism and in filmmaking. And so for me, what I hope is, is if I'm able to turn this around, if I'm able to get the film out there in a big way, in a successful way, then hopefully that will send a message to the industry, to say, hey, before we bend the knee next time, maybe we don't want to have egg on our face, and maybe if we program a film, we stick by it. Maybe we would decide to be an EP on a film, we champion it. Because at the end of the day, I think that what's really scary to me is that if you go back 30 years, you have Salman Rushdie, his book. People, I think the translators for his book were murdered but bookstores still chose to put it on the bookshelf at a principal and sell it. Fast forward 30 years, you have a huge institution like Sundance or a multi-millionaire many times over like Abigail Disney. And a few tweets and well-written letters and a campaign causes them to capitulate. And these are supposed to be the institutions and the industry leaders that are supposed to safeguard against that. And if those are no longer working, because at the end of the day you're always going to have people attack your work, mm-hmm. that's not new. But what is new is these institutions and, and the, the leaderships in these industries aren't leading. And what I mean by that is, in the fire service, when you're the captain, you have more responsibility than a firefighter, you take the hit, you protect your crew. I was a filmmaker that was ac- accepted into Sundance. And instead of Sundancing protecting the filmmaker that they programmed, they threw that filmmaker under the bus. And that film and everyone involved in it. And to me, that's not leadership. And if you're not leading in the industry, then you're, you're basically devaluing the value that you say you add. And at the end of the day, I think someone once told me the saying like, said so the only thing more dangerous than a person with limitless resources and more money than God is someone who has nothing Else to lose at this point, we
1: got nothing to lose. it's <laughs> 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 fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Meg. It's been an absolute pleasure. If people want to find you online, if they want to find out more about you, where is the best place to do that? Yeah,
0: so we have a GoFundMe page that we put updates all the time. So if you go to GoFundMe, just search Jihad Rehab or Jihad or, or uh, Maker GoFundMe. Um, we have a website, ghadrehab.com, where we put a bunch of screenings and all those dates as well. And they can follow me on Twitter at meighon um, or Mix Maker on Twitter. I think that, that, I think you can search for that. I'm kind of like not really a Twitter expert. I fucked it up a couple times. So I'm still trying to learn. I'm not a social media expert at all. Yeah. And then I think you know if people have any leads in terms of like if there's a theater near you or a film festival that you think would be brave enough, or if you are in the industry. Or you are a BAFTA member. Uh, oh, that's one thing I should say. Um, for people in the in the UK who are BAFTA members, you can watch it. So it's on online right now, but only for BAFTA members and only for Academy voters. They have this very like pr- huge security protected streaming things that are available to those members. And they can watch the film and then make up their own mind. And that would be really helpful for more people, as many people to see this film as possible. Well,
2: we wish you all the best. And like I said, if there's anything we can do for you in the future, we'd be very happy to do that. Uh, With that, we've got one final question for you, which is the same as always. What's the one thing we're not talking about as a society that we really should be?
0: I think one thing that I've been kind of talking about lately Um, and really appreciating is the power of I don't know. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is I've had a lot of discussions with people lately about a plethora of things, and there seems to be a certitude about things that I, I know that they don't know a lot about. And what I mean by that is the other day I was with some friends, and I gave them a hypothetical scenario. I said, what would you say if I told you someone at a major newspaper tweeted, A sexist joke what should happen to that person that's a very limited amount of information and so i went around the table and i asked my friends none of my friends asked for more information they all had their you know judge during sentence one was he should be fired another one was he should be suspended without pay another one is he should be demoted i said okay what about if i told you that this journalist was in the business for 30 years multiple pulitzer prizes multiple uh, awards and like Woodward and Bernstein level and what if I told you that the whole Twitter thing that he was doing was literally just mandated a month ago where his paper said you must tweet at least twice a week something in order in order to like meet your minimum requirement and what if I also told you told you that, that tweet was sent at two in the morning on a Friday night for someone who was you know in his late 60s probably out at the bar drinking What if I told you he thought he was sending a private message to a friend on Twitter and not posting it publicly? Does that change how you would punish this person? And of course they all went around and changed their answer. And then what I realized is when you give people facts without context, it's not truth, it's propaganda. And so what I really want people to really kind of drill down on is context because context is everything. And a lot of the times we see videos online that are 10, 20 seconds long, and we come in and we judge right away. But what we're missing is the context because context will tell you more what you need to know. And without that, I would employ people to just take a beat because having been a, <laughs> gotten a lot of hate because there was no context, I think that it's imperative that people approach situations with inquiry rather than inquisition and with curiosity rather than judgment. And I would also implore people to be not just kind to one another, but give people the benefit of the doubt. We're all trying to do the best that we can. And none of us are inherently evil people. We all think we're doing the right thing. So I think the one thing that I would say is I think people need to seek out context A lot more than we are
2: i like you meg i think it fit very well in like the late 1990s early (laughs) 40s that's your era because that world i'm afraid uh, i wish it were here but it ain't uh but you're right of course you're right uh and there's a a great uh that's a great note to finish on we'll ask you a couple of questions for our locals uh meg smaker that's us thank you very much brilliant pleasure
0: So I went to go interview the head of the FBI thinking he was gonna say this is some kind of dog and pony show. This is like just a PR stunt. But he said, and I was really surprised he said that, he said, we fucking love this program and we wish we could do something like this in the States. And I was like, well why can't we? Two reasons he said. One